The first reading is from Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 28, and can be found on page 988 of the Church Bible. A mother's request. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The second reading is from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, and is on page 1199. Doing good for the sake of the gospel. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This is the word of the Lord. To God. So do uh, turn to, with me to page 1199 in the Bibles. And let me lead us in prayer. We do indeed want to come and listen, Heavenly Father, to you in your word, to your gentle voice, speaking of what Jesus has done so that we might see what that means for us in our lives now. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs>
because we only focus on the what. So here are these Christians in this pagan, anti-Christian culture, and it's easy to focus on the immorality and the decadence and the crime and the living for self, and then be asking what needs to change. And that's how it was in Crete. But we can do the same today. We can see all the problems around us. We've been thinking in these weeks about problems in the Church of England. We've been talking about things in, in our city, our country, and the wider world. We can think about those things, and we can get really clear on what we think is wrong and what we think needs to change. And actually, we do the same on an individual level in our own lives. We struggle daily, maybe, with anger or lust or selfish greed or <clears throat> whatever it is. <clears throat> and we're, we're kind of half aware of that. And uh, we think, oh, no, I've blown it again. You know, tomorrow I'm going to try really, really hard not to do that again. But tomorrow comes and what do you know, we haven't changed and we blow it again. So we think, oh no, no, what I need to do this time is I need to try really, really hard. I obviously wasn't trying hard enough before. I'm just not taking the Christian life seriously enough. I need to kind of really work hard. Double my efforts. And we read what we heard last time about letting the world see how Jesus makes us different. And we think, but you know, I mess up every day. I don't get it right. And so we do, in all of that, we're focusing on the what. And we might give a lot of thought to the how as well, the kind of techniques we need to adopt in order to change. But in this letter so far, most of what Paul has focused on has been the what and the how, but right back in the first couple of verses of the letter, he talked about the truth that leads to godliness. And now he comes back to that, to give us the why that will lead in turn to the how and then finally the what of the Christian life. So we've got two things on the back of the notice sheet we can note as we look at this together. Two things to see from these verses as we focus on the why. So first, live in the light of what God has done in Christ. Verses 11 and 12. Live in the light of what God has done in Christ. So verse 11, the Christian life is not first about the rules we must keep. It's about recognising that the grace of God has appeared when he talks about the grace of God appearing, it doesn't mean some abstract thing. In verse 13, look at that. If you see verse 13, that what has appeared is our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who will appear, he says. And also then chapter four, uh, 3, verse 4, when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared. So when he's saying the grace of God appeared in verse 11 of chapter 2, he's talking about when Jesus came. In him we see the grace of God. So grace, as we often talk about it, means a gift that we don't deserve. Sometimes we see, you know, uh, we, we say G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. But the point is, it's his riches in Christ that he offers at the expense of Jesus' death. It's not some other kind of thing over here separate from Jesus. It is Jesus. It sums up what is brilliant about Jesus, that he is God's gift to us. He is his grace 
to us. And this, he says, offers salvation to all people. Meaning that now that Jesus has come, it's not just a particular race of people that have primary access to God, the Jewish nation, as God began with. It is Jew and Gentile on equal terms. So anybody, any background, whoever we are, whatever we've done, we can come and put our trust in Jesus and know salvation. And that means even people in Crete, that's his point here, even people in that culture in Crete, even people in London, of whatever background, through Jesus, can come into relationship with God. Get that clear, says Paul, and that will give you your why. That will teach you, verse 12, do you see, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. So it's not, on the one hand, the Christian gospel over here that kind of saves you, you know, put your trust in Jesus and you can, be, you can have eternal life. And then, oh yeah, yeah, but by the way, when you've done that, over here there's a bunch of rules that you've got to keep. You know, that's quite often how we present or think about the gospel if we're not careful. But no, it's, it's a new life over here that flows from the truth of the gospel that they and we, if we're trusting in Jesus, have believed. So, okay, then, well, how does God's grace in Christ teach us? It does that by giving us the shape of the new life we are to live. So we heard that in the first reading. So what does Jesus say to uh, James and John and, and, and their mum, who is the kind of, did you hear that in the first reading? Their mum is the kind of ultimate helicopter parent, hustler, soccer mum kind of figure, all rolled into one uh, with her as she kind of intercedes on behalf of her sons and she comes to Jesus and she says, can they have the best seats at the banquet, please? But no, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. So it is with you, he says. And so this new life is about doing what Jesus did. It's about turning away from what used to define us, which was living for ourselves and our own interests and our own pleasure and our own benefit, repenting, turning from that, dying to that old way of life and rising in Christ to new life, serving God and serving others. That is the why that then shapes the what of the Christian life. Do you see? So that the Christian life is not just a random list of rules, but a way of life shaped by what Jesus has done. As we serve like he served. So we're thinking a lot about marriage at the moment because our culture and the wider church are, are talking about this a lot. And saying, why can't two people of the same sex be married to each other? What is the problem? And the point is that from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis to the end of the Bible in the final chapters of Revelation, marriage is there. It's woven into the story of what God is doing in the world with his people in the gospel. And in particular, it's there to point beyond itself to God's love for the church, to the gospel. So it is shaped by this gospel of Jesus who died for us, the union indifference of Christ and the church. Male and female in marriage model that. 
So marriage itself is shaped by the grace of God appearing in Christ. So, by the way, is faithful singleness. It's not as if the only way to model the gospel is in marriage. So you're only kind of doing it properly if you're married. That's not what the Bible says at all. Jesus wasn't married. Paul wasn't married. Those who are single and faithfully pursue a life of celibacy and singleness are also modelling to a watching world that Jesus is the one who matters most. Serving him who came to serve, looking forward to knowing Jesus for eternity when human marriages will end and give way to the eternal marriage of Christ and the church. As far as the Bible is concerned, both singleness and marriage have their joys and sorrows, their highs and lows. Both require a commitment to faithfulness as Christ has loved us. So do you see, the grace of Christ teaches us what our lives today look like. And that's just one particular example, because the gospel models for us the life of faithfulness in our human relationships. But there is more to say, because the wonderful thing about our lives being shaped by God's grace in Christ is that his grace in Christ is still there for us even when we fail and mess up and we don't live in the ways that are held out here. When we don't live this life we know we're called to live, when we don't adorn the gospel as we were thinking about last time and show the watching world how Jesus makes us different, when we fail to do that because we're works in progress and we still mess up. And again, the world around us has totally forgotten what it means to forgive, to to, to let go, to be patient with one another. All it knows how to do is to, to cancel to reduce the circle of acceptable righteous people more and more till really the only person left is you or me or whatever. But in Christ there is always more grace when we mess up. So, you know, today was not a great day, we say, even at 20 past 11. (laughs) My life was not like what Paul holds out here, you know, I gave in to worldly passions. I wasn't self-controlled and upright and godly. Well, in Christ there is grace. Go to him, know that you are forgiven and start afresh tomorrow. That is living in the light of what God has done in Christ. Do you see? And what that then means is that as we face the world around us and we also face the failure in ourselves, the solution that they and we need is not kind of shouting louder or digging in and finding ever more strident ways to stand up for kind of, you know, moral upright values in a decadent culture. Actually, no, what the world around us and what we ourselves need, according to Paul, is the gospel. It is the good news about Jesus. Because that is what will change them and us. Remember that cynic slogan, people don't buy what you do, they buy what you believe. So whatever you think of that in the context of business, it really sums up what Paul is saying here. Because, you know, we might say, well, why why will anyone listen to me with my views on the issues of the day which feel so out of step with my colleagues and my friends and the wider culture? Well, they may not buy what you do if that's what you focus on all the time. Especially when they first hear it. Just think, well, why would I listen to that? 
So in that sense, it's not particularly helpful to go around kind of wagging our fingers and saying, you know, that's immoral to people who have no concept of who Jesus is and what this upright, godly life that Paul holds out here is, is talking about. They don't know God. They don't know Jesus. So they may not buy what you do, but some will buy what you believe. And again, that helps us when we face those hard questions. So, you know, you're at a dinner party or a family event or a work do, or you're talking to people at school. And someone just sort of casually says, you know, you're not, you're not one of those Christians who, who, who's against gay marriage, are you? You've got weird views about men and, and women or about transgender issues or whatever it might be. And again, we, we, when we hear that, we think, oh my goodness, what on earth am I going to say? I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to... I, I, I mean, we, we focus on the what, don't we? We focus on what am I going to say in response to that? And how do I say what I want to say without sounding like what they think is a bigot? And so we just sort of panic internally. But we need to find a way to say, actually, I believe something different about human beings and the world. Take a step back from the issue and say, look, I've just got a completely different way of seeing the world. But I want to find a way to share with you. Because our world somehow has come to the point where it believes that identity and fulfilment are somehow all about sex. And actually we want to say, no, that, that, that's not what identity is about as a human being. It's not what true fulfilment is about as a human being. And also, you know, it may not just be sex that, you know, if we want to broaden the conversation, turns out identity and fulfilment are not about money and they're not about power and the things that so many in our world live for. And again, rather than just focusing in on those issues, you want us to take a step back and say, look, here's a different vision for what a human being is. Here's a different vision of identity and fulfilment. To realise these are things that we don't have to achieve for ourselves, we don't have to build for ourselves. They're given to us as a gift by the God who made us and who knows us. He tells us who we really are. We don't have to kind of build an identity that we parade to the world and play out on social media. We get given an identity. We get given a new identity. Even though we're sinners who turned our backs on the God who made us, he gives us a new identity in Christ. And he says, you are beloved. Whatever you do, you are loved. You belong in the family. That's an extraordinary identity. To know that you are already loved and accepted and fulfilled in Christ before you even begin stepping out into the world. It's the opposite of what the world around us believes and deals with on a daily basis. And so we want to be able to find a way, you know, knowing that it won't be exactly those words and we each have to figure out how we say it in words that make sense from us, but find a way to be able to say in those hard times when we're kind of put under the spotlight and someone asks us the question to say, look, I want to be able to tell you about something different from what the world around us believes, a different story about 
human flourishing, about who we are as human beings. Take a step back. Start with why. Live in the light of what God has done in Christ. So that's verses 11 and 12. And then he goes on. Live in the light of what God will do in Christ. Verses 13 to 15. So you can see in these verses, he's got this kind of vision of the Christian life where you're living in the gap between two appearings of Jesus Christ. The first one, 2,000 years ago, the grace of God appeared, verse 11, but then verse 13, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So the first one, 2,000 years ago, the, the second one, we don't know when, in the future. But for now, our lives are marked... Do you see, by waiting, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing, appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Just note in passing the ease with which Paul calls Jesus God. But the, the world around us is a here and now focused world. That isn't how it is for Christians. We are focused on the time when Jesus returns. So how about this? You know how many people have a little sign up in their house somewhere that says, I don't know, something like home sweet home. Something something about home that makes you feel positive about home. You you might have a sign like that on, on the wall. And that's because we want to reflect our commitment to building. You know, this isn't just a house. This isn't just bricks and mortar. This is a place of safety and security, a place of warmth, a place of hospitality, not just for our own family or whatever or whoever we live with, but for those who might come into our home. And we want that to be a positive, warm place, of course. And that's entirely right. But just think about this as a kind of thought experiment. You know, whether or not you have one of those signs literally on the wall, Could you imagine putting up a sign in your house that says, not my home? Not my home. Now, I'm not just talking about that because, in fact, you rent and you don't own your home. But even if we do own that home, would we be willing to say, actually, this is not my home? In the sense that I am someone who is waiting for Jesus to return. And that time when he returns is when I will be most at home. Or does the idea of saying, you know, even though there's a huge rent or a massive mortgage and we're sacrificing a huge amount to to make this our home, this is not our home in the ultimate sense. How does that sit with us? How do we feel about that? Does that make us scared? Fearful? Or hopeful? Joyful? Because whoever we are, whatever we own or rent now, we only get temporary ownership. It will eventually pass to someone else. But what we get in eternity is permanent and it lasts forever. So this is not my home. Now, of course, some people will look at Christians at this point and say, well, look, here's the problem. 
you know, because you Christians, you're kind of weirdly focused on both the distant past, because you keep going on about what happened 2,000 years ago at the cross, and then the kind of distant future, or whenever it is, and we don't know, but when Jesus returns. You, just keep, you keep going on about then, history, you keep going on about the future. You know, but, but, but you, you, you Christians are so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. Do you see? Because they're saying, we, the rest of us, who aren't focused on the distant history and the, and the distant future, we're actually worried about the here and now and, and how we change the world here and now. What about you Christians? Well, actually, that misses the point of what Paul is saying here and what he means, because throughout these verses, the point of keeping our focus on those two appearings, past and future, is that so that we now live differently. As we saw in verse 12, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, here and now. The past and the future appearings of Christ transform us now and they purify us so that we live out our status as those who've been redeemed, brought back from wickedness, purified to do what is good. Now, one example of this is the, uh, the, the, the Victorian philanthropist, Lord Shaftesbury. And that's what this picture on the screen is about. Do you know that statue? It's Piccadilly Circus. That is the Shaftesbury Memorial Fountain at the end of Shaftesbury Avenue. And the reason it's there is because Lord Shaftesbury was a great social reformer who had this you know, title and you know, he was a lord and an earl. Uh, but he shunned that high office to work tirelessly for the poor. And in particular, what he's known for is that he helped to bring an end to child labour and ensure education for all. So massively significant in the history of this country. He was a Christian. And, you know, now we have Shaftesbury Avenue and we have the, 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 the Memorial Fountain. But if, if his what was social reform and that made such a difference that he still talked about 200 years later and, and we've still got that statue that we have to go around when we get to Piccadilly Circus. That was his what? What was his why? Well, he wrote this towards the end of his life. He said... I do not think in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. What an extraordinary thing to say. What an extraordinary thing. It's not what you expect, the guy who brings an end to child labour and, and brings in education for all and makes this massive change. You don't expect him to say, yeah, all that time I have not lived a conscious hour without thinking about Jesus coming back. An extraordinary thing, but that was his why. So that his sense of waiting for Jesus' return wasn't a distraction from influencing the world around him, but it was the absolute cause of that influence. So as we come to a close, do you see what Paul is saying? You can't do the what without the why. Get the why clear for yourself and for the world around you. Verse 15, these then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. <clears throat> Do not let anyone despise you. 
So maybe today is the day to come to Jesus even for the first time. You've, you've met Christians. You've wondered what it is they believe. You wonder what, why do they live in this different way? What is going on? Get clear on the why that motivates to come to Jesus and say, I need to be forgiven. I need to have that fresh start. I need to know that grace in Christ. I need to know that new identity that I get when I put my trust in him that no one can challenge or take away. Or I don't need to keep up this pretense out there in the world or on social media. I can be who I am because in Christ I am accepted as I am. Come to, to Jesus and, and believe in that. And if you've, if you've done that already, we can so easily lose sight of that, can't we? We can so easily forget the grace in Christ that motivates us day by day to live for him. And we can think, oh, I don't need that today. I just need to focus. I've got so many things to do. I've got so much massive to-do list. And worries and concerns. Well, it is focusing on the appearing 2,000 years ago and the future appearing to come that will transform the to-do list as we do it in the light of his appearings, past and future. Keep our eyes fixed on him. Believe and proclaim the truth of the gospel then. Because as we believe that for ourselves, what we then need to do is to go out into the world and share that with the world around us. It's not actually about the big issues of the day, is it? That everyone wants to talk about. What we need to talk about is the Jesus who came into the world 2,000 years ago and who one day will return and who changes everything now. That is what our friends and our families and our neighbours and our colleagues need to hear. So believe and proclaim the truth of that gospel. That is the only thing that will change both ourselves and our hearers. Let's just pause now to... Reflect for ourselves on what we've heard before I lead us in prayer. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your grace which has appeared and offers salvation to all. We want to come and believe and trust in this Jesus for ourselves and to offer him to the world around us so that people might see and hear clearly the why in the Christian life that we might see and believe that for ourselves too, that that might then teach us to say no to ungodliness, to our...
passions and desires for things which aren't of you. And instead to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives while we wait for Jesus to return. Keep our eyes fixed on that first appearing and the second appearing of Jesus and help us to live now in the light of that. Amen.